Welcome to Prima's 2017 podcast series. My name is Shonda Ragland. I am the Director of Education and Training at Prima. On this Prima podcast, Michael Otworth and Ben Eggard will discuss wrongful prosecution lawsuits. Ben Eggard is a partner at the law firm Wiley Rain LLP. Ben is nationally recognized as a leading attorney in municipal liability insurance coverage matters and disputes, including wrongful conviction, cyber threats, ADA liability for police encounters, drones, and municipal sign litigation. Ben handles complex insurance coverage litigation matters and provides strategic advice to clients on a broad range of insurance coverage issues and bad faith matters. He litigates in federal and state courts and jurisdictions nationwide and has been recognized as one of DC's super lawyers for insurance coverage by Super Lawyers Magazine for each of the last five years. Michael Otworth is a Vice President and Home Office Claims Manager for Genesis Management and Insurance Services. Mike has been a frequent speaker at Prima conferences and has authored articles on claim-related topics. Mike has a Bachelor's of Business Administration from Ohio University and a Master's of Business Administration from the University of New Haven. He completed his CPCU in 1995 and also holds the ARM and ASLI and RPLU designations. We will also be joined by Taekwon Gilbert, a member of Prima's education and training team. Taekwon will moderate the discussion. Enjoy the podcast. Mike and Ben, thank you for joining us today for Prima's podcast. Mike, can you please give an overview of what a wrongful conviction claim is? I certainly can. Let me start by saying the media and public are hooked on the drama surrounding wrongful convictions. And for example, the Serial Podcast. This acclaimed podcast investigated a wrongful conviction arising out of a Baltimore, Maryland murder back in 1999. Serial was the number one rated podcast on iTunes during its production. It's now been downloaded nearly 100 million times. And another good example was the Making a Murderer on Netflix. This was a hit television documentary chronicled a wrongful conviction back in Wisconsin. Like Serial, it was widely acclaimed for the story it told, which won actually an Emmy for the best documentary. But opening up with that, I want to just say this is not just media fascination. Not only are wrongful convictions gripping for the media and the public, as I mentioned, but they are frequently, they lead to complex lawsuits with large exposures for public entities and their insurers. Suddenly, a public entity finds itself at the center of a compelling drama it would rather not be a part of. But let me start by what I think is very important. That is a working definition of wrongful conviction. And let's start with the term overturned conviction. And what I mean by that is, that is a person that has been wrongfully convicted if he or she was convicted of a crime, either through a trial or by pleading guilty, and later was either declared factually innocent or relieved of the consequences of conviction by a government official or agency. Examples, well, that would be acquittal, dismissal, or even a pardon. These can result from reopening the criminal case or through a separate court proceeding challenging the criminal conviction. And it's important to note that a conviction may be classified as wrongful for two reasons. The person is factually innocent, or there was a procedural error that violated a person's rights. I want to also sum up by making a distinguish between wrongful conviction and wrongful arrests and prosecutions. Wrongful conviction scenarios differ somewhat 
and that they're much bigger in magnitude. Very similar features, but the substantive procedural errors do not get past the trial stage, and that's the important issue here. And you don't have the same kind of lengthy incarceration typically found in a wrongful conviction matter that you would in a wrongful prosecution or a wrongful arrest matter. All this impacts both the substantive legal issues raised by the arrest and the prosecution. More importantly, the exposure is completely different, as I mentioned. In a wrongful conviction case, you could have a conviction that lasts 10, 15, or even 25 years compared to someone who just lost a little bit of liberty for a few years. Ben, I know that wrongful conviction claims are prominent today, but is this a recent phenomenon? Thanks for the question. Uh, yeah, both. there's a yes and no answer to that. So these scholars and jurists have been aware of the concept of wrongful convictions for at least 100 years, if not longer. You know, you can think of, for instance, back in our, the history of our country, the, the Salem witch trials. But historically, the wrongful convictions were generally viewed as a series of unrelated miscarriages of justice. They weren't a viewed generally as a systemic problem of the of the criminal justice system. So they were kind of perceived to be isolated and not, you know, an indictment of of whether or not our country is able to provide justice to people who are accused of crimes. But everything changed in the 1990s. The revolution of DNA testing really completely altered the landscape and how we perceive uh, the criminal process. For the first time, DNA testing had the potential to clear an innocent defendant of a crime or confirm that a defendant committed the crime. And so what you've started to have, especially in the early 1990s, you would have, let's take an example of a rape crime. There would be someone who was accused of a rape, went through the criminal process, and then had been convicted of it by a jury sometime prior to the early 1990s, and then with the advent of DNA testing in the 1990s, public officials and defendants and others were able to sort of take a look back at, at the criminal case and then determine conclusively through science whether or not the person had you know, committed the crime here in this example, rape. And so uh, what, what they started having with increasing uh, frequency was these going back through uh, rape convictions and sometimes murder convictions, and then they would test through DNA evidence that was gathered in connection with the crime. And then suddenly we found this group, this growing group of people who uh, we could confirm through science had not committed any crime. And um, sort of at the same time that uh, DNA testing became more prevalent, there was an organization called the Innocence Project, which in 1992 was founded um, by two attorneys named Barry Sheck and Peter Newfield. And um, the influence of the Innocence Project in this area cannot be overstated. Since the early 1990s, the Innocence Project has exonerated or assisted in the exoneration of literally hundreds of people through the use of DNA evidence. There are now other organizations that sort of have um, sort of extended and and taken up the cause along with the Innocence Project, and there's organizations called the Innocence Network and sort of affiliated organizations at law schools and journalism schools uh, nationwide. But all of those have sort of taken what was essentially initially a, a DNA focus of looking back at what happened in the criminal justice system, and they've expanded it to other areas as well. But anyway, the, the DNA really has changed everything. And so 
And as the DNA technology has gotten better and more prevalent, the actual cost associated with this has gone down. So today, a DNA test costs as, as little as $1,000, which is not an insignificant amount of money. But and when you do like a, a typical battery of, of tests, it's running around less than $10,000. But those are numbers of dollar figures that are within the reach of a large number of people in terms of trying to establish their innocence or that their their conviction was somehow wrongful. And in the last, say, decade or so, the United States Department of Justice has also entered into this space and has started providing basically grant donations to localities so that public entities can then assist in um, this testing process. And um, so in recent years, there's been $60, $70 million of grants that sort of go out nationwide to facilitate improvements on the, and to uh, fund DNA testing. So uh, that's sort of a rough history of how we've gotten to where we are today from something back at the Salem Witch Trials where it was just sort of viewed as sort of a historical anomaly to the early 1990s where we're seeing this more as sort of a systemic problem that has been greatly aided by the advent of DNA testing. And so that's sort of how we've gotten to where we are today. Mike, can you describe what a typical wrongful claim that comes into Genesis looks like? Certainly. And by doing so, let's start with basic demographic patterns. For example, gender. No surprise that most of the cases that come in, actually 91% of the wrongful conviction matters um, involve men compared to 9% for women. Race, it's 47% black, 40% white, and 12% Hispanic. When you're looking at crimes, 43% are homicides, 27% sexual assaults, with 13% being for other violent crimes. And the trials themselves, 78% are convicted by juries. But the most important issue here is the length of incarceration. The average wrongful conviction case involves a person who has been incarcerated for 14 years in prison. I also think it's important to look at the substantive basis for exoneration. And there are certain fact patterns here that really lead to these wrongful convictions. And the most important one, of course, that you have to look at is witness misidentification. And this is the greatest contributing factor to wrongful conviction, especially in the context of cross-racial identification. Another issue is unreliable forensic evidence. And sure, while television attempts to portray this as the infallible you know, storyline that always gets to the heart of what happened, the reality is far different. Many forensic techniques, such as arson testing, or even um, firearm tool mark analysis or shoe print comparisons, many of these tests are prone to errors. And the third one I find somewhat surprising, of course, is false confession. Believe it or not, in recent years, 25 to 40 percent of the wrongful convictions involved a false confession. Another issue, official misconduct. And this can take place, believe it or not, at every level or stage of the criminal investigation. And it can be anywhere from influencing witness identification, influencing witnesses themselves, or failing to turn over evidence. And finally, you have to point out informants. Many convictions, believe it or not, result from statements from people with incentives to testify, particularly incentives that are not disclosed to the jury. And finally, let me touch a little bit on exoneration data. 
Believe it or not, since 1989, there have been over 2,000 exonerations, and the numbers continue to climb each year. For example, back in 89, there were 20 known exonerations, but for 2015, there were 162, and in 2016, 169. And where were all these coming from? Well, actually, it's four of the largest states contribute to most of the wrongful convictions. That would be Texas, New York, Illinois, and California, with Texas leading the uh, pact with 348. So there's a lot of issues that you have to look at. We hope you're enjoying the podcast. Here's some words from Prima's member services manager, Danica Williams, regarding Prima membership benefits. Prima is a membership organization dedicated to advancing the knowledge and practice of risk management in the public sector. Prima members come from a diverse range of disciplines, entity types, sizes, and share a variety of titles, including risk manager, human resources professional, workers' compensation coordinator, employee benefits coordinator, claims administrator, safety personnel, risk pool administrator, just to name a few. Despite their titles, there is one resounding theme among these individuals, and that is that they manage risks within their entity and importantly, risks affecting the public interest. Prima members enjoy a robust array of educational programming, risk management resources, and networking opportunities. Some of Prima's member benefits include access to blogs, podcasts, webinars, Prima's Job Bank, Prima's online community where members have the ability to connect, share, and solicit information directly from their colleagues, Prima's Cyber of Risk Management documents, Prima's flagship publication, The Public Risk Magazine, and member discounts to all Prima events and training. Becoming a Prima member is one of the most worthwhile career investments a risk management practitioner can make, not just for themselves, but for their entire entity. To learn more about Prima member resources, visit primacentral.org. Now back to Ben, Michael, and Taekwon. Ben, I know you've been involved in a number of wrongful conviction lawsuits. What are the legal claims that you often see? Sure. So, yeah, if you picking up sort of on that question and what Mike was talking about, if you read to pick up the newspaper tomorrow and read about a lawsuit that was filed against uh, a public entity or, or public officials, it's going to look like someone who is probably an African-American he was is a male, so he was convicted probably in the 1990s, and he was exonerated sometime earlier this decade after spending 14, 15, 16 years in prison. And, um, you know, the lawsuit is going to be concerning an underlying crime, typically of uh, rape, sexual assault, or murder. And, you know, most of the time, these are coming from a handful of states like Texas or Illinois or California. Uh, New York, where the population centers of our countries are. And the target of the suit is the public entity, oftentimes, and it's also going to be police officials. And the lawsuit itself is is often seeking, you know, a, a, a you could blackboard a big number associated with it. So sometimes it's 10 million or 15 million or sometimes even more based on, sometimes based on the, the length of the incarceration. 
And the legal claims that are common in these suits mostly focus on federal civil rights statutes. Uh, the main one is uh, uh, under uh, uh, what's referred to in common parlance as Section 1983. And uh, Section 1983 was a civil rights statute that was enacted in 1871 following the Civil War, which provided a civil remedy to against acts committed in the southern states, such as those committed by the Ku Klux Klan against black citizens. And the purpose of the statute was to create tort liability by allowing individuals to assert private causes of action against government entities and their employees for violations of rights that are protected by the United States Constitution. So that if a public entity or police officials have violated, say, Fourth Amendment rights or the Fourteenth Amendment rights of a person, depending on which Fifth Amendment rights, there's many constitutional protections that, that are implicated in any criminal process. Section 1983 provides the legal vehicle in which to file a lawsuit or assert a tort claim against an individual for violations of those rights. Those rights just on their own just protect you from from that happening, mostly in the criminal process of Fourth Amendment or Fifth Amendment rights. But to create civil liability, there needs to be a different avenue, and Section 1983 provides that avenue. And... uh, but what's important to recognize is that the Section 1983 is more than just negligence. There's usually some kind of intentionality or deliberateness to the violation of the rights. So somehow someone's Fourth Amendment rights, say, for instance, search and seizure are violated. If it's just an accidental violation of those rights, that's not something that's going to be actionable under Section 1983. It has to be something more deliberate or malicious. And the types of claims that come in sort of fall into four or five broad categories. The first is, and usually they're sort of focused on different purposes, different points in the process. So the first category you commonly see is a false arrest claim. And um, so basically that's sort of the, the, at the simplest level a, uh, a version of the wrongful conviction claim. And so it's basically asserting that there was an arrest and there is a lack of probable cause for this arrest, meaning that the police didn't have a reason to arrest the person. So you're looking really at the very beginning of the criminal process. And then the sort of the second bucket of claims you see is uh, what's generally referred to as a false imprisonment claim. And it's similar to false arrest, but basically saying that there was an intentional confinement and then there was a lack of probable cause for that continued confinement. So again, that's a claim that's sort of looking or at least starting early in the process of the criminal action against the claimant. And then the third category, which is really one of the most prevalent ones you see, is a malicious prosecution claim. And it's really the most common one you see, and it's generally falling under the 14th Amendment. And the essential element is that basically this prosecution was undertaken against the the claimant um, then criminal defendant without any probable cause. Malice, as the cause of action implies, is required. So it's not simply that the prosecution was undertaken in error, sort of going back to my negligence comment earlier, it has to be malicious. Someone had to do something very intentional. So one example of that might be manufacturing evidence, planting evidence, or something along those lines. That's not an accidental type of conduct. 
or deliberately withholding um, exculpatory conduct. So, for instance, if a witness could corroborate that the claimant, then criminal defendant, was nowhere near the scene of the crime, but the prosecution failed to turn that over, or the police failed to turn that over to then the then criminal defendant, that would be sort of a kind of intentional conduct that might be actionable as a malicious prosecution claim under Section 1983. Then there's other sort of categories of claims that sort of uh, flow from these first three. The fourth kind is a due process claim, which is sort of a wide-ranging claim that's looking at whether there is any steps in the process in a, uh, after the initial arrest and the initial prosecution in which the person's rights were being violated. And then finally, um, the last category is what's called a Monell claim. And Monell is a um, lawsuit uh, that was decided by the Supreme Court a number of years ago, decades ago. And basically what it is, it's, it's a suit against the entity. Most of these suits are against or these claims and causes of action are against particular officials. So it might be a police investigator or in some rare instances, the prosecutor or maybe a forensic lab worker, those kinds of people. It's difficult or a different kind of claim is, is asserted against an entity. You usually can't assert these types of claims I've been describing against an entity. And so where this comes in is, is a Monell claim, which is how the entity may be liable. And basically, these are looking at whether or not there was a policy or practice that led to the violation of the rights that were otherwise described in the last couple of minutes. So if you have a false arrest or a false imprisonment or malicious prosecution, when you're accusing the entity, the public, the public entity of misconduct here, what you're really saying is that um, or asserting that the public entity has a policy or practice that led to this specific instance and therefore because it's a policy or practice, the entity should be liable in the same way. And uh, the very last piece of this, um, to respond to your question, is that there are sort of state claims as well as these federal lawsuits or federal claims under Section 1983. The state claims, though, more or less mirror what is actionable under Section 1983. And um, But occasionally you'll also see just sort of a straightforward negligence or negligent infliction of emotional distress type claim. So anyways, that in a nutshell is sort of what the legal issues that, that are implicated by these wrongful conviction claims. Mike and Ben, can you talk about the factors important to public entities and their insurers in resolving wrongful conviction lawsuits? Yes, let me let me start with that. One issue I think you have to really focus in on is compensation statutes. Approximately 30 states and the District of Columbia have statutes that provide financial compensation to wrongfully convicted persons. These generally apply irrespective of fault, but unfortunately often the caps are very low. Another issue I think you have to focus on is liability defenses. And as Ben mentioned earlier, the primary defenses to liability focus on immunity and statute of limitation arguments. Relatedly, whether the claimant has been shown to be innocent versus merely having the underlying criminal action terminated favorably may be a power lens affecting how defenses to liability play out. And the other issue I want to touch on is damages. Claimants often seek damages as calculated by a particular amount times the number of years of incarceration, with the suggested coefficient being, believe it or not, a million dollars per year. Now, you hear this a lot in the papers or in the media, but rest assured, the actual value of settlement in jury wards is actually much far less than that. 
This is Ben, and um, one factor I think, that, at least in the cases that I've been involved in, that's that's pretty important to the resolution of cases is the impact of insurance coverage issues, depending on the size of the municipality and and sort of the types of claims and the amount of insurance coverage that might be available. That sometimes can be one of the more overriding factors or indeterminative. Uh, and the most common insurance coverage issue that I see is is looking at what policy is triggered and whether or not it's one in effect recently or one that was decades ago or one that was somewhere in between. And so what trigger means is basically which insurance policy is going to be activated or respond to the wrongful conviction claim that um, that is that's being asserted. And um, just sort of a very broad historical background on this, there's probably 65 or so 70 decisions that have addressed trigger of coverage in the context of of uh, wrongful conviction or similar matters. The vast majority of those have been decided in the last five to seven years. But the, the issues that are sort of being litigated today around this insurance coverage issue are those that have been, they were first litigated probably about 50 years ago. And um, the current approach to it is sort of, and it's the very widely adopted. The vast majority of uh, courts that have looked at this has held that the initial violation of the rights of the claimant is the trigger of coverage. It's a very straightforward rule, and literally the vast majority of courts and jurisdictions nationwide have held that only the policy on the risk at the time of the initial violation of the accused rights is triggered. And the rationale behind these decisions is that although wrongful conviction matters involve many different constitutional and common law torts under Section 1983 or state law, as I mentioned earlier, um, that historically, the, the way they're viewing these claims, they're all looking at them in the context of a malicious prosecution claim, which is sort of the the most prevalent ones of these. And historically, over the last 50 years, courts have held that a malicious prosecution claim looks to when the violation of the rights first happened. So, you know, from a practical standpoint, most times the claimant's rights were first deprived at the time either of arrest or indictment, depending on the facts of the particular case. So most of the time in this situation where someone has been later exonerated and found to be wrongfully convicted and you're sort of looking back at the criminal process, things went off track typically at the time of arrest or the time of indictment when the, it, it's, it depends on in that particular facts situation which came first. Sometimes a person is arrested and then they're indicted. Other times they're indicted and they, then the, uh, the public entity goes out and arrests the person. But that's generally how what the vast majority of courts have done. Now, there's been a number of other types of triggers that have been argued, but courts have pretty uniformly rejected that argument. Sometimes Either claimants or public entities have have asserted that the exoneration, the end of the criminal process, you know what has happened in the last few years in terms of determining that the person was wrongfully convicted, that that ought to be the trigger of coverage, and that really doesn't sit well or square with the typical policy language you see most of the time because the person isn't actually injured by an exoneration. That's a remedy. Someone was freed from prison. At the time of exoneration, there was no tort committed against that person at the time. Other other types of trigger arguments have been made, such as concealment of past misconduct as a trigger, or that ongoing injuries, such as as long as the person was in prison, each each year is going to be triggered if there was any kind of policy in effect at the time. But courts 
pretty uniformly have said, looked at those arguments closely and then landed on the conclusion that no, really the trigger of coverage ought to be when the the violation of the rights of the person was first committed. And as I mentioned a, a little bit ago, that is uh, most often around the time of arrest or time of indictment. So that in a nutshell, sort of what Mike alluded to was sort of looking at liability issues, looking at the defenses and damages issues, and then sort of the coverage issues and those sort of issues sort of working together are probably some of the most outcome determinative factors in terms of creating a, a, a platform for a successful resolution for a wrongful conviction claim. We have reached the end of our podcast. Thanks so much, Ben, Michael, and Taekwon. Please visit the Prima website to listen to other Prima podcasts, join upcoming Prima webinars, read Prima blogs, and learn about additional Prima educational resources. Be sure to check us out on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and our very own Prima Talk. Enjoy the rest of your day.